Let's bow together as we look at God's Word, shall we? Father, as we come into your presence this morning to hear from you, we ask that you would take and use your Word in our lives. May we be different because we gathered here this morning to sing your praises and to learn from you. May we rejoice in what you have given us in Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning that has never placed their faith in Christ, or anyone watching that's never done that, that even today they would place their faith in Him for their salvation. Guide as we look into your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in our series, concluding our series about who this child is and unwrapping the Christmas gift. Now, there is a very well-known fictional story that begins with these words. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. On the count of three, I want you to tell me where that comes from. One, two, three. A Christmas carol. That's right. And that fictional story really could be a lead-in to the way our real story from Matthew 2 begins. Because you could really say, Herod was dead to begin with. Dead as a doornail. And so I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to find not exactly those words, but the reality that Herod was indeed dead. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Herod is dead. Perhaps one to two years Mary and Joseph and Jesus have spent in Egypt. There is no TV news to tell them that Herod was dead. They couldn't get a telegram from a family member to say Herod's dead. Instead, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream, which is when the angels come to Joseph. I'm not sure what that says about him. But they, this angel tells him, Herod's dead. And so now, go back to Israel. Go home. And Joseph, a sermon in itself, immediately obeys what God tells him to do. And he intends to move back to Bethlehem. Don't know why, perhaps uh, the messianic link, maybe the time they had spent in Bethlehem after Jesus was born, they'd made some friends, maybe Joseph had established a bit of a carpentry business. Whatever reason, they were planning to go back there and not back to their original hometown. But then Joseph hears who's ruling in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem. You see, when Herod died, his kingdom was divided up by the Romans into three separate regions, each governed by one of Herod's sons. And Archelaus inherited the region of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Archelaus 
inherited also all of Herod's brutality and none of Herod's political skill. In fact, Archelaus at one point kills over 3,000 people in Israel, and eventually the Romans, who aren't afraid of barbarity themselves, the Romans remove him from office, and they replace him with governors, and we know that because later in Jesus' life, he meets one of those governors, a man named Pilate. But at this point, Archelaus is ruling, and Joseph hears that, and he knows his reputation, and he decides, I don't want to go there. That sounds too risky. And God concurs and gives him another dream. And so Joseph returns to his hometown, to Mary's hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew doesn't tell us that's their hometown, but we know that from Luke. Luke tells us that's where all of this story started. And so they are going to go back to Nazareth in Galilee, and that brings us to today's fulfilled passage. Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was spoke that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's our fulfilled passage. This is the last one in this opening sequence. Matthew 1 and 2 is really the, kind of his introduction to who Jesus is, the whole birth narrative. And it's the last of the fulfilleds in that section. And so this morning we're going to unwrap the gift a little further and look at this. But it's another tough one. You will look in vain for an Old Testament reference to Nazareth. There is none. You will look in vain for an Old Testament reference that Messiah would be called a Nazarene. There isn't one. So what in the world is Matthew doing? Is he wrong? No. Now some have suggested that, well, the answer is he's doing a word play. And so Nazarene sounds a lot like Nazarite, and so he's doing a word play on the idea of a Nazarite. The problem with that is that Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. And it's kind of an obscure wordplay. Others have suggested that perhaps Matthew is, is doing another different wordplay from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, and the Hebrew word for branch is nezer. So you hear nezer, nazarene, there's a little bit of a play there. From his roots shall bear fruit. And as I'll mention a little bit later, I think this verse does tie in, but I don't think it's all about a word play of Nezer and Nazarene. I don't think that's what Matthew has in mind at all. Instead, Matthew is drawing another word picture for us, like he has done earlier in these chapters, as he closes out this opening act of Jesus' life, as we unwrap the gift. Nazareth. Nazareth is a lowly, pretty much unknown town. In fact, there is, as I said, no reference to it in the Old Testament. Perhaps it wasn't even founded until the Old Testament was done. We don't really know when Nazareth began. Nazareth is identified with Jesus from this point on, though. He's often called Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. Jesus of Bethlehem would have had that messianic kind of connection, would have been impressive. 
would have been like if you were to call me, because, you know, in those days there weren't last names, so if you were to call me Bill of Columbus, I mean, most people know where Columbus is, but really, I am Bill of Newfield. Nobody knows where Newfield, New Jersey is, probably. So that would not be impressive at all, and so neither was calling him Jesus of Nazareth. It is a tiny place of some four or 500 residents, which actually is about the size of Newfield, New Jersey, where I was born. Nazareth is also a Gentile-dominated area, often called Galilee of the Gentiles. The Roman garrison was stationed not far from Nazareth. The people of that region were looked upon as collaborators because they helped the Roman soldiers because that was a way of making a living. The Greek town of Sephorus was only four miles away from Nazareth. This is not a devout area. It is an area that is looked down upon, especially in Jerusalem, by the more orthodox Jews. And so it kind of rubs off on Jesus. He's not Jesus of Bethlehem, a king's town. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the place nobody likes. We even see that in the Gospel of John, don't we? John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Lowly, despised. In John, later on, they're arguing over who Jesus is. Others said, This is the Messiah, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, if they'd taken the time to look into Jesus' background, they could have solved that. In verse 52 of John 7, the the Jewish leader said, search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. So when you talk about Galilee, when you talk about Nazareth, you're talking about a despised In Matthew 2.23, Matthew says, so that was what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. Matthew does not have in mind a specific prophecy. What he has in mind is the whole of prophetic message. And what he is saying in essence is, the Jews had it wrong. The Savior who was coming was not going to come as a powerful, mighty, impressive ruler. He was going to come as a Nazarene, as a despised person. And the Old Testament does talk about that over and over again. For example, in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The verse we referenced earlier, Isaiah 11.1. Not an impressive person. There's just this dead stump of David's line and this little shoot, this little branch that grows up from it. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. How? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's lowly. 
He will faithfully bring justice. And then as we'll talk about a little later, the passage that I think Matthew really has in mind is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 3, Pastor Ryan read it earlier, says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So Matthew is saying, don't look at Jesus and expect him to be a conqueror, a mighty, powerful, impressive person. He's a Nazarene. He's out of Nazareth. He is simply a lowly and often despised, humble Savior. And he unfolds in his gospel, and so do some of the other gospels, as we'll pull them in as well, the lowliness of Jesus, the Nazarene. So let's think about who Jesus is this morning. Let's unwrap this gift that was given to us at the first Christmas And let's notice that our gift is the lowly and despised Jesus. We don't often focus on that at Christmas. We we think of the baby and we think of the angels and the glory. But he came as the lowly, despised Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus was lowly in his birth. We didn't spend any time in Matthew chapter 1 in the beginning of it, but if you were to go back there, you'd see his family line is a mess. I mean, yeah, it starts out Abraham and David, and then it goes downhill from there. Because you have Tamar mentioned there, and that whole incestuous relationship that happened that ended up bringing forth sons, one of whom is in David's line. And then you have after her mentioned in in the line of David, Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, and Ruth, a Moabitess, and Bathsheba, an adulteress. And then you have all those failed kings that are mentioned. That's, That's Jesus' closet with all the skeletons in it. So that by the time you get to chapter 1 and verse 12, we find they're deported into Babylon. And now... As Jesus is born, he is born, Matthew says, in the days of Herod the king. Rome rules, the family of David doesn't. Herod rules, the family of David doesn't. He's born into a family that has no political clout, no political importance. Jesus and his family are essentially nobodies. And he's born and he's laid in a manger, in a feed trough. His mother is pregnant and unmarried when the story begins to unfold. And yes, we know because Matthew told us she is a virgin, but most people don't know that. And in fact, that accusation follows Jesus all through his life. Again, in the Gospel of John chapter 8, they, the Jewish leaders, say to him, Jesus, We weren't born of sexual immorality like you were. He's lowly in his birth, despised in his birth. He's part of a poor peasant family so that when he's taken to Jerusalem to be circumcised, they can't even offer the the significant offering. They offer two birds because they're that poor. And as we've already seen in Matthew, he ends up being a refugee. 
He and his family have to flee to Egypt and spend time in Egypt hiding away from Herod. Jesus was lowly in his birth. He was also lowly in his life. He's a nobody compared to the big names of the day. Caesar Augustus, Herod, Tiberius Caesar, all of the names that history in that day would have lifted up as being the most significant. Not a little baby, not a child, not a, an adolescent living in the backwater place of Nazareth. His early life is obscure. We have one story from Luke chapter 2. When he was 12 years old and he goes to the temple, remember, and he stays there and his parents think he's traveling home with other people and he's not. It's the only story we have of his childhood. Oh, there are a lot of uh, apocryphal fake stories out there, you know, how he made clay birds and threw them up and they turned into real birds. Or there are stories about how when he was in Egypt, he just walked past Egyptian idols and they crumbled. Just a bunch of baloney. Lowly in his life, we don't know much about him. We do know that as this picture portrays, he learned to be a carpenter from Joseph because the gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, calls him the carpenter, lowly occupation. As he begins his ministry, he has no permanent home. Matthew records that for us in chapter 8. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's the Nazarene. He's lowly and humble. In one of the biggest scenes of his life, and we even call it the triumphal entry, notice how Matthew records it. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. No white charger, Just a donkey. And in fact, it's not even his donkey. He has to borrow it. And the crowds say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. He's the Nazarene. He's continually and ultimately rejected by his people, despised by them. John tells us this. He was in the world and he was the creator. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, didn't acknowledge him. He came to his own place and his own people would not receive him. In fact, they cry out, don't they? We will not have this man to rule over us. Away with him. He's the Nazarene. He is the lowly and despised Jesus. He was also lowly in his death. All the disciples run away. Peter, his leading follower, denies him three times. Judas betrays him. He dies the death of a common thief and criminal hanging on a cross naked for all the world to see his shame. You can't get much more lowly than that. And he's buried in the tomb of somebody else, another different Joseph. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. 
And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. He is the lowly and despised Jesus. Why in the world would God come in lowliness? What's Matthew's point in saying he is the Nazarene? Well, he's reminding us that our gift is the lowly and despised Jesus because Jesus came to be our humble Savior. He didn't come to be the conqueror of Rome. That's what the Jews were looking for. He didn't come just to be a great teacher, the way many people acknowledge him. The lowliness of Jesus, the despised Savior, is for you and me. That's why he came as the Nazarene. He came to pay for our sins. He came in all lowliness. And as I said earlier, I think in the back of Matthew's mind, as he says, the prophet said he'd be called a Nazarene, is especially Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 portrays for us the lowliness of Jesus. The fact that he wasn't impressive, that people didn't look at him and just fall all over themselves. Who has believed what he's heard from us, Isaiah writes. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, like a little shoot out of the stump of David's dead household. Being the time of the year, I just I couldn't help but think he's kind of like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. Nobody's impressed when they look at Jesus because he's the Nazarene. He's lowly and he's despised. And he's not only unimpressive, but he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That word despised is used twice there. It's a really strong word. It means we had absolutely no use for him. We rejected, literally, we abandoned him. Why? Because we saw him as characterized by great anguish and pain and suffering. And who wants that kind of leader? We want the strong leader, not the broken, sorrowful, despised one. They despised him so much that they hid their faces. They would not even look at him. They turned away. They they, they looked and said, loser! And they turned away and wanted nothing to do with the Nazarene. He was not esteemed. That's an accounting term. It means we looked at him and considered him to be of no value. We looked at him and said, worthless. We looked at him and said, junk bonds, don't invest in him. But he's suffering. And more, because of you and me, we deserved that suffering. Notice the very personal pronouns that continue the passage. Surely he has borne our sorrows, carried our griefs, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. There's an emphatic contrast in those verses. He carried the griefs and the sorrows. All of the results of my sin and your sin were laid on him. And he carried them like the scapegoat in the Old Testament. We esteemed, there's that accounting term again. We valued him as one who was stricken by God and afflicted. And in a sense that's true, right? He was stricken by God and afflicted, but we thought it was because he deserved it. When we were the ones who deserved it, he took our punishment He was pierced through for our rebellion. He was crushed for our guilt. He took the beating that we deserve for law-breaking. And only His wounds, only His wounds bring healing. And then verse 6 really just summarizes, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. In other words, God said, go this way. And we said, no thanks, we'll go this way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God took our rebellion. He took the consequences and the judgment, the punishment that we deserve for walking away from God. And he laid it on Jesus. And he punished it in the person of Jesus on the cross. Why was he lowly? Why was he the Nazarene? Because he came to die. He came to die for your sins and my sins because we are like sheep who continually wander away. Paul says much the same thing in the New Testament. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. He gave up all that he was deserving of. So that you and I could receive all we didn't deserve through him. Paul continues a different way in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped a hold of and held on to, but emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the Nazarene. But all of that is first coming, and and we dare not leave it just with that, though that's the major point Matthew's making. We need to understand that, yes, he came in humility and he died, but he rose. And Paul goes on to say, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the lowly Nazarene is coming back and he's not going to be the lowly Nazarene. He is going to be the ruling and reigning king. But he came 
in all humility because he was going to die for your sins and my sins so that the lowly despised Savior is our humble Savior. He also came to call us to himself. Don't miss the tie in Matthew 11 with what Matthew 2.23 says about the humble Nazarene. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. I'm a Nazarene in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came as the lowly, despised Savior so that He's the approachable Savior. So that we aren't in so much awe of who He is that we won't come. And so He describes Himself as gentle and lowly because He's inviting us to come and find rest that is only available in and through Him. And He's promised that rest, and He keeps His promises. The lowliness of the Nazarene was so that He could be our humble and despised Savior. And so at this Christmas season, as we move on into a new year, understand that everything that the story tells us and everything that the life of Jesus shows us and all that is revealed to us on the cross is for us. And the resurrection demonstrates that, yes, He is the humble Savior, but He is the conqueror of sin and death, and He is the Savior who can be trusted. And so that's the, the challenge that I would give to you this morning. Come rest in the lowly Savior who came to give us rest. And I would ask you whether you're here in the worship center or you're watching online, do you know that Savior? Have you ever come to Him and asked Him to forgive your sins based on what He did when He took our sins on Himself and to save you and to make you His own child? If the answer to that is no, please on this last day of the year, none of us with a guarantee of a new year tomorrow, talk to Pastor Josh or to Pastor Ryan or Pastor Jim or myself or that friend that brought you and allow us to introduce you to Jesus. Or reach out by email or, or phone to our office and allow us to talk to you about the humble, lowly Nazarene who came to give us rest. And if you say, yes, I've made that decision, I know Jesus, then the challenge of this passage is that we need to imitate our lowly Savior in 2024. Paul writes right before he describes Jesus humbling himself, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not, to, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, the lowly Nazarene, the humble Savior, serves as an example for us 
who too often are concerned with our position and our power and getting our own way. And as we enter 2024, we need to take on His lowliness. As Berean enters a new phase and stage of life, we need to take on His humility and lowliness and imitate the one who came to be called Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. D.L. Moody says this, We may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. See, we can never humble ourselves so far that God can't use us, but we can sure puff ourselves up so big that God won't use us. Imitate our Savior. Come to Jesus and find rest in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Matthew's description of your Son and our Savior as a Nazarene, as a lowly, despised one. Because we understand that that lowliness and being despised was not what he deserved, it was what we deserve. But he bore all of that for us. Help us to trust him. Help us to imitate him. As we move into this new year, if Jesus doesn't come back, we pray in his name. Amen.